This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You are listening to The Property Show on the Morning Run. And I'm Philip C. On today's Property Show, we are in conversation with Matt Benson, Senior Director at Think City, Malaysia's leading urban regeneration organisation, on how the urban landscape has evolved throughout the pandemic and how do we begin to rebuild communities again. Welcome, Matt, to the... Uh, Matt, let's just get straight to this pretty prescient topic today because, you know, Think City, it's been around for some time. I think it's established in 2009. So really a good track record you know, 13 years. You are really at the forefront of driving change and discussions on how our cities will look very different and should regenerate right. You started in Penang and now you moved across all the major cities in Peninsular Malaysia. But I'm just curious to understand whether the pandemic has totally upended your view and perspective of how the urban landscape is. Uh, Thanks for the question, Phil. My first comment would be that I wouldn't say it's totally upended. Certainly it has been a shift in the way that we think about cities. There has been some vulnerabilities that have emerged. There have been some issues in the cities that have been there that COVID has shone a spotlight on. And certainly there are transformations that have happened that will be enduring uh, beyond the pandemic. And here I'm thinking things like technology, working from home, work from anywhere. I think there will be instances of ventilation in buildings that we think about, that we hadn't thought about before. I think there'll be some transformations in our suburbs and our second and third tier cities that would have been uh, accelerated, if you like, uh, by the pandemic. Um, and likewise, I think that there are some issues around open spaces that may have may, may be rethought as we move forward. But fundamentally, I think that cities will be cities. Cities will continue to be the engines of growth. But yeah, of course, there are some shifts um, and accelerated trends that the pandemic has triggered. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. You know, this idea that cities remain engines of economic growth, you know, people are questioning whether that's true and relevant still, isn't it? You know, as a result of, digital communication with Zoom. We see people say uh, hollowing out of, uh, you know, working areas and locations. And and so people do challenge that concept, right, about cities being future economic engines. What's your take on that? Uh, well, my, my, well we, we shall see. It's my first take on it. But my, my feeling is that, yes, absolutely, cities will be engines of growth. Yeah, sure, there will be uh, people working for home more often. People will be running business out of their, their Zoom rooms at home. But they're still going to occur in cities. I don't think people are going to be retreating to you know agriculture areas necessarily. I mean, there'll be some counter-urbanisation, I think. We've certainly seen that in Australia, where some of the, the smaller townships outside the big capital cities are um, have increased demand as, as a direct result of the, of the pandemic. I mean, these were trends that were there already that just been accelerated. In Malaysia, less so. So we may see a reconfiguration of the distribution of the population um, in Malaysian cities. But I think it's still going to be an urban-driven growth. It just may not be that it's all about the, the primate city yeah. and all about the city centre. So I think that's how the transformations will happen. I think there'll be transformations in the suburban areas that we haven't seen before as a, as a legacy, as people sort of, I guess, um, re-familiarise themselves with their neighbourhoods 
neighbourhoods and the idea of a 20-minute city, et cetera, come up. But, um, yeah, my view is that absolutely cities will be continue to be the engines of growth. It just may not be the mega cities that are the engines of growth. Yeah, so I get your point that actually economic density is going to be reframed very differently, but the march towards greater urbanisation cannot be disputed, right? Because, I mean, just look at Malaysian example, 70%, and in just a decade, we are close to 80% urbanisation rate. So that, so that march will continue, but the shape and structure of the urban landscape will perhaps be not as super concentrated as what we used to think, right? So uh, more suburban nature in its development. You know, so I wonder whether for Think City and the work you do, right, you do incredible work and very much it's been concentrated at, I would say, high economic dense locations, isn't it? Or, or population dense locations like, let's say, Georgetown or even right in the middle of KL with Jalan Yapaloi and such, right? Do you see uh, your work spreading out a bit further then? Uh, yeah, it, it's possible. I mean, the I think city's origins are in a culture-based urban regeneration. It's not to say that culture is only related to heritage, but yes, yeah, certainly our our roots have been in the the city centres, the historic centres of Georgetown, of JB, and, and of Kuala Lumpur. That's certainly been, and even Butterworth. That's been the the focus of our energies over the last decade or so. But yeah, absolutely, I think there is potential for revitalisation initiatives in some sub- suburban areas. There are 70s and 80s city centres in Malaysian cities that could greatly benefit from the process of urban regeneration and, in fact, are in need of it. Um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years on, some of that infrastructure is decaying and it's, we're going to create a more polycentric set of cities and city structures, then, yes, I think we need to be thinking about um, urban regeneration in some of these older, but not necessarily heritage-aligned town centres and uh, urban centres. And you were alluding early on to the shifts in perspective and thinking, right, uh, in how communities will look at pre- and post-pandemic. So could you help me paint a picture and contrast to me how public spaces have changed or what's the perspective or expectations from communities on public spaces pre- and post-pandemic? Well, I think I'm going to answer this to say that I don't think it's fundamentally different. I just think perspectives have changed huh, on how we see it. And we, and we saw that in you know during the height of the pandemic in, in Europe with people coming up with different ideas about how the public open space was used as people were in lockdown, et cetera. A- absolutely. But I think the, the needs have always been there in terms of the public, public open space. It's what we, it's, it's a unique aspect of a city because it's what we might call the great equaliser. You know, it, it's the, by its very definition, it's a space where anybody can go yeah. without having to pay a cost and technically though not always is welcome to sit under a tree in a park right so so it's the great equalizer um in terms of how that fits into the form of the city and the role role of a city i think again as we think about the diversity and polarity of, of communities in our cities so so we should have a diversity of spaces we should have a hierarchy of spaces we should be clear about their function we should have small parklets in in the city city to break up the monotony of, of, of landscapes we should be having um civic squares they should be connected where possible with you know, tree-lined streets and we should also uh, not underestimate the value of the larger spaces the botanic gardens for example are critical critical elements of, of of a city centre. So are there very subtle shifts and changes you have to to make? Because you were saying, look, it's not really a big change from the pandemic. It's just a shift in perspective. Are there subtle changes that, you know, you as an organisation, you as a look at, right? And, and you look at the space and say, oh, because of what we've gone through in the past two, three years, I'm going to design it a bit differently or look at it a bit differently. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, as you go through the design process, of course, you look at, you know, what, what are the trends, what are the emergent social norms, what is the, the landscape around it, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, given the context, you might rethink a space given um, some of the new work, work patterns, for example. You know, we may be thinking about city centre spaces in, in a different way. We may be thinking about if office, big, great office buildings and city centres uh, lose demand, maybe they need to be converted into residential spaces. Maybe that's where the need is. Maybe then we need to be thinking about how different parts of the city uh, have to cater for the recreation and leisure needs of, of those new communities. So, yeah, I think the answer is yes, but I think it's context-driven and it's not there's not a uniform answer to that question. And if we talk about context, you started off in Penang uh, and really hugeful, hugely successful program uh, in Georgetown area, right, which then I think expanded and gave you really the license to, to engage and really spread your wings across multiple cities. Can you help me contrast uh, between, let's say, the work you've done in Penang and some of the interesting work you've done also in KL. How is it different? How do you look at it, right? Because they're very two different environments, right? The context is totally different, isn't it? Yeah. Look, um, the answer to that is that fundamentally the approach is the same. It's bottom-up, it's crowdsourcing ideas and projects, it's working with the local government. It, it's the power of, of doing multiple small and medium-sized things to catalyze change. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, cities, not every city is the same. There are subtle differences. And in these two cases, I think that the subtle the differences here is Georgetown is certainly um, it's older. Um, it has it's you know it's a, it's a world heritage site. It's uh, has residents living in the city centre, um, and it's very tourism and hospitality driven. Whereas in Kale, yeah, sure it's got tourism, yeah, sure it's got residents, but the the real big driver there is office workers, shoppers. You know, it's quite a different function. Right? So you've probably got more of a not, not transactional, but certainly transitional space in mm. Kale. Whereas Georgetown probably is a, yeah, it's, it's just slightly different new. So it does change some of the things you do and some of the way, some of the thinking about the spaces and also the purpose of, of the activities that you're doing in terms of the, the end goals. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, that's reflected also in the work on the ground that you do in KL. I mean, uh, you, your breadth of projects in KL is also vast. You have work with PNB's Merdeka 118 precinct where you want to regenerate the location. At the same time, you're also sprucing up certain alleyways and lorongs across the city, right? Mm. How do you pick and choose projects? or, or yeah. you know, bottom-up ground projects in KL. It must be diverse because we can't assume KL is some monolith, isn't it? No, that's true. And certainly the projects we do in any given precinct are based, again, on local context and understanding community and the particular needs of, say, Kampong Atap versus Jalantar, right? You, mm. you, you cannot compare the different spaces, different economic functions, etc. But in relation to the Medeca 118 uh, comment and our own work in previous years, look, they're, um, I would say they're not mutually exclusive. And in fact, they're aligned. Um, they're just coming from slightly different perspectives. And we, we've been um, investing in KL since 2014, working with local authorities to rejuvenate the historic core and build um, a, a creative district around that you know, through public realm investments and small grants. And we're actually doing something um, similar with PNB. We're working with them to build resilience in the surrounding community through a small grants program and investing in the public realm. So again, the it's it, it, it's about, I think, finding synergies and complementarities, not necessarily about picking and choosing mm-hmm. um, the initiative. And fascinatingly, you, I mean, as part of, you know, Kazana National, really are able to leverage and build deep partnerships with businesses, 
with corporates, right, relatively easily. And I can see that in through all the initiatives you've done. But I guess the million dollar question is how do you build relationship with local council, with DBKL? That is tougher and more challenging than working with the communities and with private sponsors and partners, isn't it? That the key success to a lot of your urban regeneration work is winning the local authorities and councils. Well, I, th- I don't think we can proceed in any location without the, the endorsement of the local authority. No? I mean, you know, I, I've, I have a lot of respect for the Institute of Local Government, um, both in Malaysia and elsewhere. I think it's at the for- it can be at the forefront and is at the forefront of a lot of very innovative, cutting-edge, frontier, community-aligned initiatives. Huh? It, sort of, it has the mandate to do things on the ground, etc., plant trees. But yeah, you look, you're absolutely right. Of course, trust is important in the relationship. You know, and, and I said, uh, we, we, we work through a process of building trust with our all of our partners, including local government. And I think the, the key here is actually about aligning your objectives and then delivering tangible outcomes in, in a manner that all parties can take pride in. In today's Property Show, I'm in conversation with Matt Benson. He's a senior director at Think City as we continue our discussion on urban regeneration in Malaysia. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to the Property Show on the Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Matt Benson, Senior Director of Think City, as we discuss urban regeneration and community rebuilding. Now, Matt, we talked in the first half a lot about all these bottom-up projects on the ground as we try and activate and get communities engaged. But really, the the project that's of substantial impact is the, the ones that deal with structure, isn't it? It's the ones that deal with strategic planning and how we design the city top-down. Yes, I would say that is the planning paradigm of the past. I think um, a few years ago, I, I even heard somebody, whereas I think it was at the MIT or telling me about, you know, about the end of the master plan, the death of the master plan. I don't necessarily agree, but what I do agree with that it, it's not, it can't be top down and likewise, it can't be all bottom up. You know, I think it's an iterative process that delivers the best outcomes. So that would be, just an example would be that your, your placemaking initiatives that you come up with, yeah, they're, they're formed by high level ideas and strategies and plans, but likewise, a placemaking initiative through engagement with community can actually you can test ideas eh? you can you can come up with thoughts about your policies and plans and feed them back into the higher the, the higher order uh, thinking about not just the structure but how you can execute it yeah? it's about again experimenting with ideas through pop-ups and other types of place making activity it's what we might call a, a prototype planning approach and this is i guess where data Right, and this idea idea of data is going to be super important. Is it's not your just your classic static data that you get from the top, but it's how the data is also rapidly regenerating and being churned out on the ground, isn't it? That's key for us to make decisions and to activate places on the ground. Correct? Absolutely right. Um, I mean, we're we're big on data. We collect a lot of our own data. We source as much of data from uh, from partners and others as we can. I, just to give you a, a brief example, because it's probably the, the the place where we have the most rich databases in the Georgetown Water Heritage. Site, whereas one of the very first things that the Pink City did back in 2009 was undertake a census of the World Heritage Site, a very detailed survey of every building, every street stall, every residence, every business, every vacancy, uh, repeated in 2013 and 2019. So we've got this very rich database, a bookend, if you like, of UNESCO listing and just before pandemic. Yeah? So it gives us a lot of information about how the city has changed over that 10 years, for good and for bad, and, and it's helped 
helped us advocate for not necessarily new thinking, but to re-emphasize some of the thinking around economic diversification, not an over-reliance on tourism, um, investing in amenity to keep your residents um, into into the city, and thinking about con- new types of content that can help drive the local economy. So it's the data that's helping, is giving us the evidence to justify those initiatives. Yeah, and, and I think ever more so, not only to justify, but to prioritize these initiatives, isn't it? Because everybody has thousands of ideas. And, you know, we, we know that as a result of the pandemic, government financing, public finances is such under so much pressure at the moment. Do you see governments around the world using urban data properly and accurately to help make decisions and to prioritise investments? Absolutely. And I think my short answer there was, yes, of course, there are governments all around the world using data to inform decisions, sometimes imperfectly, and sometimes they're using a lack of data or ideology to, to or politics to inform data. But yeah, of course, as, a, as an organisation um, dedicated to delivering the best outcomes for community. We're a strong believer in using data and, and science to drive the initiatives that we, that we put forth. I guess one key element of the data, which we hope will be very instructive, is how it helps us build climate resilience in cities. I mean, an example for me would be somewhere like Jakarta, where they've had no choice but to create and move to a new capital city as a result of this immense uh, expectation of flooding. Uh, So I, I wonder whether our cities in Malaysia are resilient or climate resilient, resilient at least, or is are able to adapt to these significant weather patterns as evidenced by the recent floods? Sure. Um, I think uh, before I answer this question, it's important that we frame the policy interventions here in terms of what we might call mitigation versus adaptation. Yep. Yeah? Mitigation is the the initiative that reduce our carbon footprint. Huh? This is the idea of low carbon cities. This is the idea of investing in cycle lanes and, and public transport and low energy buildings and maybe even possibly planting trees to absorb carbon. This is this is the mitigation side. This is our city's contribution to reducing global warming and global change. Huh? That, that's one. So and, and and Malaysian cities and Malaysian city leaders have done that very well. Huh? There's lots of evidence of, of that. Then on the other side is the adaptation. And the adaptation is basically realizing that climate change is happening and it's going to impact our cities and our communities. Southeast Asia is one of, if not the regions on the planet that will be most significantly affected by climate change. In Malaysia, the impacts will be threefold, well, multiple fold, but, you know, if we want to simplify it down, they will be around more intense and frequent rainfall events leading to flooding. They will be around more intense and frequent heat impacts, which will lead to warmer cities an enhanced heat island impact and public health issues as a result of that, which are not really registered. And lastly, in certain parts of Malaysia, most notably the west coast of Peninsula Malaysia, inundation as a result of sea level rise. So there, so on, on this aspect, there are three things that can be done, right? And, and Think City has been very prominent in pushing forward this idea of nature-based solutions as a mechanism to adapt, yeah? low carbon cities on one side, but nature-based solutions to adapt the climate change on the other. And this is relatively simple ideas around using nature to deal with flooding. So let's get, let's do upstream retention and to slow the water down before it enters the cities. Relatively simple, um, low-cost um, activity. Let's plant trees in our cities that are on the right side of the street that create shade in, in the right right areas so that our cities are more walkable. We can also use, tree, use trees if planted in the right location in places like Georgetown to channel wind into the city and cool the city. And lastly, what we can do is we can preserve our mangroves and expand our mangrove forests in those vulnerable coastal areas to protect against inundation, very low cost, and also because they have that carbon sink 
value, um, potentially even generate some income for states and cities through international carbon markets. How receptive is government to some of these suggestions? Because we've seen recently the floods. We know the temperature in our cities, right? Um, these are credible and interesting ideas. My question is, how receptive are local governments to adopt an action on it? Well, we're, we're finding them um, in our conversation incredibly receptive huh? because, as I said, you know, planting trees, dealing with drainage, they, they, these are things that local government, uh, uh, you know, they have, the, they have the know-how. It's not new technology. It's not building digital twins around the city or anything. It, it, you know, they have they have the nuts and bolts, the machinery, the know-how of doing this. So it's just about a thing. It's about reapplying existing knowledge into this. So I mean, we've we've been successful in Penang. We've been working with the local authority and the Department of Irrigation and Drainage and the Penang State Government to pioneer one of Malaysia's first adaptation programs, nature-based solutions adaptation program. We have secured 10 million USD from the adaptation fund, the World Bank's adaptation fund, mm. to invest in this infrastructure. In partnership with these local local authorities and uh, with the endorsement of the state. We're in conversations with multiple other um, local authorities and state and federal entities, all in support of these notions of nature-based solutions uh, that, that are low cost, high impact. And I mean, this, this is where the many of the worlds are going, and many of the cities in the world are going, in addition to this other idea of what they call sponge cities, which um, can help deal with flooding as well, which is more suited to some cities than others. Yeah, so I, I'm really quite keen to see when will these conversations turn to action, right? And what is going to be that trigger to move it? Because we have the data, isn't it? We've seen in first sight the floods. You've even done the survey that says that chaos temperature has increased by 1.64 degrees in just over 30 years, right? So the data is there. We are feeling and experiencing, you know, how do we convert that conversation into action with these natural solutions? Well, my view is it's about demonstration. Yeah? I mean, even with the 10 million USD that we have secured for parts of Penang, um, it's not, it's not, it's not, going, it's not going to change the whole island or the whole state. Yeah? It, it's going to change a couple of areas in some dramatic ways. But it's, it's the knowledge codification, it's the know-how of doing it that will change it. I mean, just look at, I mean, this is part of the Think City approach. You just look at laneways, huh? laneway region, as, as, a, as an example of how we can catalyze and mobilize ideas in the landscape you know the small couple of small event interventions in Penang and and KL has and it's not you know these happen elsewhere in the world but we've showcased them has triggered a, a laneway improvement program across the nation through demonstration and likewise I think that if we we can demonstrate a few streets and precincts around these concepts uh, and scientifically show how these have significant benefits and impacts in the longer term, document that knowledge, share that knowledge, that's how we're going to do it. That's that's what we can do. If we were to build cities that are able to think for themselves, that are able to constantly evolve and adapt to the environment, hopefully in a very natural way, you know, what is the critical secret sauce or infrastructure required really to build cities that keep on evolving and think for themselves? interesting you say that cities thinking for themselves i think, I think what we mean is the people in the cities thinking yes for <laughs> i define yeah correct it's uh, and, and let's, let's somehow the biological think, construct um, of the city a biological construct which which i'm okay with yeah maybe yeah. maybe that is the case but look more seriously i think that yeah the, the, it's about it's this notion of a learning city yeah and and this is a big part of the, the think city approach which is learning and building acquired know-how yeah? of, of how to make these transformations and and being cognizant of the fact it's okay to have 
have experiments and to adapt to new information and circumstances as they arise. Yeah? Um, so, it's, so it's about building resilience by building know-how, what I would say. But more specifically in terms of infrastructure, again, there's obviously there's no one size fits all. We have, we have infrastructure that's going to be vulnerable to, to, to climate change, vulnerable to technological change, etc. So I think it's the answer is that it's probably about a combination of technological infrastructure from you know, the digital, the 5G, etc., but also the traditional infrastructure. That and this is where things like the nature-based solutions come in. Yeah, um, and, and look, and Think City will continue as its role as an advocator of these best practices building and sharing the know-how that we develop and demonstrating what is possible when we can. Building resilience by building know-how. That's all the time for today's Property Show. Thank you for being on the show, Matt. I've been speaking to Matt Benson, Senior Director at Think City on Urban Regeneration. I'm Philip C. signing off for The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.